Well, it's been quite a week as we have awaited who might be named the next president of the United States. And whether the process of all that playing out or maybe the potential of who that person may actually be, uh, either one of those may have brought you some anxiety. I'm here to tell you some really good news this morning. King Jesus is on the throne. Amen? King Jesus is on the throne. I want you to know that King Jesus has always been on the throne. He is in control. He is sovereign. Uh, the good news is, is that from the very beginning when Jesus created the world, he was king. When he came here 2,000 years ago and walked upon the face of the earth, he was king. Since he ascended into heaven, he's been reigning as king. And I can tell you today that Jesus is king. He was yesterday. He is today. He will be tomorrow and every other day. Regardless of who's in the Oval Office, regardless of whether you voted blue or white, whether you're man or woman, you're black or white, whether you cheer for IU, Notre Dame, Purdue, or even Kentucky, Jesus is in control. We're here to celebrate Jesus as King today. You know, on Wednesday morning, I woke up. I had not had much sleep because we'd been watching a lot of the election. And this was the lock screen, the verse of the day from the Bible, I've said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe that with all my heart. And we're here to celebrate that today. And I'm so glad that you're worshiping with us today. You know, if this week didn't have uh, enough excitement about it itself, uh, this past week we started talking with our staff about some of the plans we have as a church for 2021. And we gathered together a couple times this past week just to kind of share several of the things that we're going to be talking about at Vision Weekend coming up in two weeks. I hope you'll make plans to be here with us. For the past several months, our elders and leadership team have been praying, asking God, God, what does it look like to really live out this mission, to live in love like Jesus? And we really feel like he has showed us several things. First of all, that we need to align around this mission like never before. That we need to do a better job of raising the level of empowerment so that every person that calls Crossroads home would engage in this mission. And he wants us to continue to be good stewards with the resources that he entrusted us with. Part of that uh, news that we shared this past week is that we have done some restructuring around our staff team. We have created some new teams. We've created some new roles. We've actually combined some roles and there have been some roles that we have eliminated. And uh, that as well as uh, our proposed budget and the elders that we're asking for the congregation to affirm. If you wanna learn more about any of that, you can certainly go to our website, uh, cccgo.com forward slash info. You can read about it there and be informed as we get ready to uh, celebrate what God has been up to here at our church in 2020. We're gonna celebrate that on Vision Weekend. We're also gonna share with you kind of where God is leading us as a church. And we hope that you'll join us in this mission that God has given us. Vision Weekend will be on Sunday, the 22nd. It'll be during all three services. So we hope that you'll make plans to join us. I don't think it's accidental today that the passage we're going to look at in our year-long study through the Gospel of John is what it is. In fact, I think it might be the most appropriate thing we could focus our attention on today and what Jesus has to say. We're going to see Jesus is king. And it's been quite a roller coaster we've been on, especially last week and this week, as we've walked with Jesus through the last final hours of his life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record these moments. Some of them give unique details, but most of them share the same details about the, the final hours of Jesus' life. And last week, we looked at some of the emotionally challenging times Jesus faced when he was betrayed by a friend named Judas. He was denied even being known by another friend named Peter. 
We saw him arrested by Roman officials and the Jewish leaders. We saw him uh, falsely accused by people like Caiaphas and, and Annas, the high priest. And at the last where we left Jesus, he was actually entered in, into the palace of Pilate, the Roman governor. We looked at some verses in John 18 last week, and we're going to pick right up where Jesus is in this moment. The last thing we saw happen is that Pilate asked the religious leaders, what's going on? Like, why did you bring this man to me? What are the charges against him? And in that moment, they say that he is like guilty of treason against Rome. And so in the moment where we're going to pick up, we now are going to see that, that Jesus has to face the questioning from Pilate. I hope that as we go through these moments with Jesus, you'll be able to kind of put yourself in the space where he finds himself. Let's begin reading in John chapter 18, now in verse 33, where we see Peter, or excuse me, Pilate questioning Jesus. John writes this, Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. I wonder if you can remember a time when you were questioned about something you did or maybe it was something you did not do. I wonder if you've ever been part of a formal interrogation. I remember in grade school, I think it was my third grade teacher, for whatever reason, she spent two weeks away from the classroom, which meant we had the same sub for two weeks. If you're an educator, I wanna say thank you. If you're a substitute and never served in that role, I wanna say I'm sorry. That is, must be the worst assignment on the face of the earth because you get sent into catching a train while it's already in motion with little authority and a whole lot of responsibility. At least that's what it looks like from my perspective. But I remember in third grade when this sub came in, we made her life for those two weeks extremely challenging. And when the teacher came back, I'll never forget, she sat down every one of us in the class individually and interrogated us about the events that had taken place for those two weeks. Now, I'm not a perfect person. I'm not, I wasn't a perfect child. I'm still not a perfect man. But for those two weeks, I don't think I participated in the shenanigans that the rest of my classmates were up to. But I got questioned nonetheless. And I remember, even though I didn't feel like I was guilty, I remember my palms were sweaty. I just started breaking out in a sweat. I wanted to confess to something because I felt like guilty for the rest of them. It was a pretty intense situation. Well, here's Jesus. He's in face of one of the most powerful men in the entire known world at that moment. And he's being questioned for things that he did not do. Each of the gospel accounts record this questioning and it begins with a simple question by Pilate. He says, are you the king of the Jews? To Pilate, Jesus did not look like a king. 
The word that Pilate uses is what we think of as a king, somebody who has authority, a lawful ruler over a people or a region. They have complete and absolute authority. Pilate was expecting a, a political revolutionary based on the charges that the Jewish leaders had brought him concerning Jesus. The charge by the chief priest was treason. But Pilate even questions the charges themselves. As Jesus often does, he answers the question with a question. And he says, why do you ask? Is this something that you heard or is it something that you really want to know about? Pilate responds, am I a Jew? I mean, it's kind of like he was dismissing him saying like, I don't know your people. They brought you to me. Like, let's move on with this. I want to move on and get past this. I think Pilate wants to know what Jesus had done, but he doesn't see him as guilty from the get-go. Jesus in this moment defines his kingdom. It's much different than what Pilate expects. Jesus says, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom has nothing to do with region or geography. It's about kingship, but it's from heaven and it's not of this world. Earlier in John 17, we heard Jesus praying some things like this. He's prayed to his father and says, Father, I thank you that I'm not of this world. And then he says about his disciples as he prays for them, they are not of this world. And in this moment, we see why. Because Jesus' kingdom is not an earthly kingdom, it's a heavenly kingdom. And he says, my kingdom is about truth. Well, what truth is Jesus talking about there? Well, the truth that he's talking about is that he truly is the son of God. And that he truly came from heaven to earth on a mission. That was to reveal God to the world and to save the world from their sins. And through believing in who Jesus is, that he truly is God, he is truly God and truly man, then we can have, we can have salvation by believing in that. Church Father Augustine says this, earthly kingdoms are based upon force and pride and the love of human praise, the desire of domination and self-interest, all displayed by Pilate and the Roman Empire. But the heavenly kingdom, exemplified by Jesus and the cross, is based on love, sacrifice, humility, and righteousness. Jesus wants his followers, those who make up his kingdom, to live and to love like him. And that's different than the world around us. So my question is this, are you attempting to build your own kingdom? Are you attempting to chase the kingdom of this world or are you truly focused on the kingdom of heaven and it's different from the kingdom of this world? Now that question can't be answered just by mere words. You have to take a deeper look into your time, how you spend your money, the desires of your heart. Are you focusing all your energy and effort on things of this world that will not last, the kingdom of this world or are you focusing your attention, your heart's affection, giving everything that God has entrusted to you toward building his kingdom and living out his kingdom here on earth? Jesus says, you should seek first my kingdom. That's what he said in Matthew 6, verse 33. Well, Pilate responds to Jesus in verse 38 by asking what seems to be a nebulous question, like what is truth? Now that question could be like insincere at the worst, or it could be unsure even at best. I think what happens to Pilate in this moment is he's struggling with middle life, middle age. I mean, middle age will bring you some nice things like reading glasses, right? It'll bring you some disenfranchisement about how life has played out. It can also bring you pride because of the successes you've experienced. And I think that's where Pilate finds himself. I think he might find himself, his question might be arrogant, like, well, what is truth? Or it might be that he is so disenfranchised by the pressure he's facing, how he got kind of caught holding the bag of everything that Rome's doing, especially with the Jewish people. And he's like, you know, what is truth? 
I haven't found truth in anything, Pilate says, and I'm still looking for it. And I think Jesus offers him that in who he is. For you and I, I hope that you hear the echoes of Pilate's question in the culture around us today that's denying that there is absolute truth. I mean, moral relativism is around us rampantly. That what is truth seems to be, well, whatever's right for you or whatever feels good or whatever it is to you is fine, but just don't force it on me is kind of the way that our culture answers that question. But you and I, followers of Jesus Christ, those of us who are convinced in who Jesus is, we have to be steadfast now more than ever to live out what Jesus says, to let our foundation be the, the, what he says about himself in John 14, 6. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Jesus does not say I am a way or I am a truth or I am a life. And so we have to focus our heart and our attention on just that. The reality is that Pilate really sees no political harm in Jesus. He really wants to get this issue off his plate. Jesus was just one stop on a long list of to-dos that Pilate had that day, and he just kind of wanted to move it along. And so he presents, first of all, the first non-guilty statement. He claims that Jesus, I find no fault in him. So he devises a plan that kind of will move things along. He mentions that there's a custom that he has with the Jewish people, that during Passover, he'll release one prisoner to them. It's very symbolic. It's very much a parallel to what the Passover celebration is all about. That one lamb that dies, put the blood over the doorpost so that everybody in the house would be saved. Well, this kind of represents that to Pilate. And so he says, who do you want? here's your king, Jesus. And they're like, no, 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 we want Barabbas. And he's like, uh-oh, got a problem. He wanted it to be over. He knew that Jesus was innocent. He just wanted to wash his hands of it, literally, but the religious leaders wouldn't let it go. This custom is really not documented in any Old Testament writing, but it does seem to have significance in this moment. And when the Jews call for the race of Barabbas, All four Gospels mention this person named Barabbas. He was a known insurrectionist, a terrorist, a notorious prisoner. He was guilty as charged, yet he's allowed to go free. And Jesus, who is humble and innocent, is not guilty, but was rejected. He will suffer. He will die. Can you see any more parallels there? I mean, is it the truth that Barabbas actually represents you and me? We're guilty as charged because of our sin. We're the ones who should be punished because of it. And yet Jesus, who committed no sin, is killed in our place. Now, what up to this point has been a lot of emotional trauma for Jesus? We're now going to see a significant amount of physical trauma as the next thing we see recorded by John, Jesus, is flogged by Pilate. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for the charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here's the man. As soon as the chief priest and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! crucify. I wonder if you've ever been slapped. Maybe it was just accidental. Maybe you're just wrestling with somebody and whack, you got cracked in the face and you felt it. You know, you felt the sting on your face. 
My son and I like to wrestle. And every once in a while, his head will hit my nose. If you got hit in the nose, you know that feeling. Your eyes start to water. I broke my nose when I was little. And so like that pain comes back every time somebody hits my nose. Or maybe somebody who doesn't like you one bit punched you in the face. You have felt the force of that kind of hatred. Or maybe you've seen somebody who's been badly beat up. When I lived in Noblesville, one of my neighbors, Scott, was an amateur UFC fighter. Uh, Ultimate Fight Club is what UFC stands for. Basically, if you don't know what that is, two men or two women get in a cage and beat on each other until like one gives up. That's kind of how I would describe it. It's pretty brutal. It's ruthless. And so a lot of times when I would go out for my morning run, Scott was waiting to help his special needs daughter on the special needs bus. And so when I would see him, even from a distance, I'm like, whoa, dude, it's obvious you lost last night, right? Well, the crazy thing I mentioned is that Scott did this as an amateur, which means he got no, he got no money for it. There was no benefit other than the fun of it. He did this voluntarily. Can you see that Jesus is offering himself voluntarily to have the life beat out of him. You know, Pilate's first plan of releasing Jesus, it it failed. So he had to come up with a new plan. And this was his new plan. I'll have Jesus beat. I'll have him flogged. And then it'll be such to the point of humiliation and pain that the religious leaders will then kind of cry uncle and they'll say, okay, it's enough. You can let him go. We're satisfied. We see the excruciating suffering and humiliation of King Jesus in these verses. Now, as I mentioned last week, the Romans had perfected the sport of making their criminals have pain, to humiliate them. And in this moment, Jesus is most likely whipped 39 times with leather straps that had pieces of bone or metal tied into them. And when they hit Jesus' back with that and pulled back, it ripped chunks of flesh off of his bone. It was cruel And many people did not survive a flogging. The long spikes that they used for thorns to make a crown of dug into the head of Jesus. They put a military cloak on him or a robe and they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Like they would be required to say, Hail, King Caesar. It was, this is your king, they taunted. I think we're reminded of the obedience of Jesus as the suffering servant Described by Isaiah in chapter 50, verse 6, he says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking or spitting. And he did all that voluntarily for you and for me. Next, Pilate offers another not guilty statement. Pilate stands Jesus in front of the Jews and says, here he is, here's the man, here is your king. The act is dripping with irony because Jesus is a man, but he is not just a man. He is fully God and fully man. He is the son of man. He is the king. Pilate presents Jesus as pathetic, poor, helpless, even harmless. But Jesus reigns as king in his suffering. His glory is on full display. His kingdom is different, remember. He's a different kind of king. He is strong. He is courageous. He is humble and he is committed. He's the man who conquered sin. He's the man who will rise in victory over death. Well, just like before, the Jewish leaders reject Pilate's bait. They call for crucifixion, death on a cross, the most humiliating and painful form of execution. It was reserved for conquered people, for lower class criminals, even rebels. It was certainly no place you would find an earthly king, and yet it's how Jesus is ushering in his kingdom. We see this take place 
when Jesus is sentenced by Pilate. Let's continue reading now in the second part of verse 6. Pilate answered them, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back inside the palace. He asked, Where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Do you realize I have the power, or don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out. He sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Have you ever had a judgment of guilt handed down to you? Have you ever been sentenced or maybe judged in a situation or a case? Maybe have you ever been awaiting punishment for something that you knew you did wrong? At my house growing up, it was the words, wait till your father gets home, that struck fear in all of my siblings. What that meant is mom had had enough. It had reached her jurisdiction and she was now passing it to a higher court that when my dad came home, he was going to use a little piece of wood that sat on top of the refrigerator known as our paddle and that was going to be put into use as soon as he got home. Now the only trick, the only defense we had was to push the paddle off the top of the refrigerator down behind the refrigerator because in my day, refrigerators took a tank to move. They were so heavy, they didn't have those cool little rollers where you could roll it out and clean behind it every week and push it back. Maybe some of you still don't do that with that little feature, but nonetheless, it took a lot to move the refrigerator. Mom couldn't do it and so we were saved until my dad got home. Now, they were pretty creative parents, too. They didn't necessarily need the paddle to enforce punishment. They did that with love and with grace, but with firm to teach us respect for authority and obedience. Well, for the third time in this passage, Pilate offers a not guilty verdict of Jesus. Pilate turns Jesus back over to the Jews. He knows the Jewish law does not allow them to crucify him. The Jewish leaders initially accused Jesus of treason, and now they're changing their accusation. Now they're saying that he's guilty of blasphemy. And they, and they claim that Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God, which Jesus made no bones about. He often referred to himself as the Son of God. Well, the problem with that in the Jewish leader's eyes is that the Old Testament law forbid that. Leviticus 24, 16 says, anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord, meaning takes the name of the Lord in vain or uses the name of the Lord incorrectly, like referring to yourself as the Lord, well, that person should be put to death. They should have the entire assembly stone them. And while the Jews had actually tried to stone Jesus earlier in John 10, now they are lobbying for Pilate and the Romans to do their work for them. I don't think Pilate's any longer concerned about Jesus as a political threat, but there is a superstitious side of Pilate that starts to play out here. 
He knows that Jesus is a divine man and he knows he's just beat this divine man to a pulp and he gets a little nervous. John says, scared even. And it only amplifies that by something that Matthew records that that Pilate's wife comes to him saying that she's had a dream, Matthew 27, 19, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't do anything, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Maybe some of you husbands can relate. Have you ever noticed that the voice of the Holy Spirit and the voice of your wife sound a lot alike? Well, Pilate should have picked up that clue phone in this moment. But he just kind of keeps pushing on. I think at this point, he just doesn't really feel like he has any options. He asks Jesus a strange question. Where do you come from? And Jesus doesn't respond. And that, that silence frustrates Pilate. Isaiah 53, 7 prophesied. It says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. And so Pilate says to him, he's irritated. He says, do you not know that I have the power to either let you go free or to crucify you? And Jesus is like, you have no power other than the power that was given to you from my Father in heaven. The Apostle Paul confirms this, Romans 13, 1. There's no authority except that which God has established. And I think it's really important and relevant right now that we just stop right here at the edge of our election process and realize that for the past 40-plus presidents that have reigned in our country, for the current president and for the one that has been elected, None of those people were elected just because they got more votes. They were actually given that appointment from one person and really one person only. It's only one vote that matters, and that is God's vote. And whether you voted for this person or not really is irreverent. God has set him up as the next leader of our country. And the reality is, is that regardless who sits in the Oval Office, their heart is in control, or or, that God is in control of everything that happens. He is sovereign. And that reality comes with a responsibility. That responsibility for you and I who call ourselves Jesus followers, how should we live and love in this moment? It's not up to like our imagination. Paul wrote some really appropriate words to Timothy when he says these words, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. I urge you, urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, for all those in authority, that we may live in peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, and this pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Whoever is elected president is appointed by God, and we have a responsibility to be thankful, to be prayerful, to be respectful, and to show them the love of God regardless of anything we might agree or disagree with. And so I'm going to take a moment right now and ask that you join me in doing just that. God, thank you for this country that we live in. God, I've traveled to lots of different countries, and I know this country has so much privilege, so much opportunity, so many freedoms, God, that many in the world would actually give their life to have. And God, I want to say thank you, especially as we approach Veterans Day, for those who have given their life, those who have put their lives in harm's way to provide and protect the freedoms that we enjoy as a country. And God, I want to say an extra blessing right now on President Trump 
and also on Vice President Pence. God, I want to thank you for their leadership over the past four years. And I want to ask you, God, that you would guide them as they bring a close to their administration. I ask that you would help them pass the baton in a peaceful and respectful way that would allow our country to heal and to move forward. And God, I want to ask an extra special blessing on President-elect Biden and President-elect Vice President Kamala Harris. God, I want to ask that you would be sovereign over their lives. God, I want to pray that you would give them the wisdom that you have as they lead our country over the next four years. God, I want to ask that you would protect their family and to bless them as they take on this responsibility. And God, my prayer is that how we respect and pray for them would indicate to others who watch our response that we have a king that doesn't reside in Washington or the Oval Office, but the king that we worship and are subject to and who defines how we live and how we love reigns in heaven. And they would see that by the way that we behave. And I pray that through the powerful name of Jesus, our king. Amen. The rest of this passage gives a lot of details about this struggle between Pilate, who really had authority but thinks he's in charge, and Jesus, who claimed really no earthly authority, but who really is in charge. Pilate tries many times to set Jesus free, and all those seem to fail. And it's getting to the point where Pilate's just exasperated, and he just kind of gives in. The Jewish leaders accuse him, like, if you let this guy free, you are no friend of Caesar. And that startles Pilate because he had been in trouble with Rome many a times. In fact, eventually he was removed as governor because of a lot of the mess he made with the Jewish people and many other blunders. And finally, once again, Pilate presents Jesus in an antagonizing way. Here is your king. But this last time, once again, the Jews cry for crucifixion, crucifixion. And so Pilate just kind of gives in. And the saddest part about all this is it's actually what John prophesied would happen in John 1.11. It says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So Pilate just gives the sentence. You can have him. He turned him over to be crucified. In this moment, we see some of the details that John records of Jesus being crucified by Pilate. Let's finish with a couple of verses, 16 through 22. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two other, and with two, him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest of the, and the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. Last summer, my wife and I watched a, a movie called Just Mercy. It's actually the real life story of a young attorney named Brian Stevenson, who after law school traveled to the deep south and he took up the cases of several African-American gentlemen who had been falsely accused of crimes and were now waiting execution on death row. Not only did he serve them as a public defender, but he also became a friend of theirs. He, he, he got to know their families and their stories, and it was obvious that they had been misaligned. And so he took their case, and many of those he was able to overturn the verdict of guilt and, and set them free. But not everybody was able to get that same opportunity. 
And so in one of the scenes, as this man makes his way to the electric chair, he stops by every cell of his fellow death row inmates, touching their hands as he makes his way to his final fate. And they begin clapping as he goes to show that they're with him in solidarity, even though he's making his way to his death. And when the lights flicker, they know that that fate has come to an end. I think about how Brian Stephen took up the cause of, of, of the, the wrongly accused. But I also think about how awful, how excruciatingly tra- tra- just a tragedy it is to see life taken in that way. Well, Jesus' execution by crucifixion was violent. It was gruesome. It was humiliating for him and for all who watched. John says that Jesus carried his cross to the place of crucifixion. It probably was just the cross beam. That would have been historically what happened. And along the way, he he can't even, because he's exhausted physically and emotionally, finish the rest of that chore. And so a guy named Simon from Serene, all the other gospels, mentioned him picking up the cross and carrying it for Jesus. This place they go to is called Golgotha or Calvary. Both of those words translated as just the skull. It's a place of death. Everybody knows it, that when you're hanging on the cross there, you've done something wrong. It's a public humiliation, but it's excruciatingly painful. Two other criminals are there with Jesus crucified. Isaiah had prophesied that he would be numbered among other transgressors. This Final uh, act of irony is something I want to point out. Pilate puts a plaque over Jesus' head that says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And it's written in three languages. Aramaic, because that was the language of the country or the general population. Latin, which is the language of the army and the Roman government. And then Greek, which is the language of a, a broader Roman empire. I think all of that indicates the type of king that Jesus is. He's actually not just the king of the Jews. He's actually the king of the world. And Pilate... Let everybody know that this is Jesus. And while the Jews object to what Pilate writes, Pilate actually, for once, stands firm. And he actually doesn't change his mind. He wants it to be known that Jesus is the king of the world. F.F. Bruce says this, The crucified one is the true king. The kingliest king of all. And because it is he who is stretched out on the cross, he turns an obscene instrument of torture into the throne of glory, and he reigns from the tree. Can you see that Jesus was questioned, he was flogged, he was sentenced, and he was crucified by Pilate? But Jesus was also questioned, flogged, sentenced, and crucified for you and for me. And so what's our response? Well, I would suggest three. The first is this, accept Jesus as your king. Submit yourself to his reign in your life as king. He came to this world to be savior. He wants to set you free. He came to deliver you out of love so that he could redeem you from the empty way of life handed down to us from our sinful nature. The reality is that Jesus cannot be your savior. He also has to be your Lord. It's not multiple choice. And so I would encourage you, if you've never received that kind of love, if you've never realized that you cannot find life on your own, you can't work for it, you can't find it anywhere else than Jesus, I pray today you would acknowledge Jesus as your king and surrender your life to him and recognize that he paid the penalty for your sins so that you could go to heaven.
But it doesn't stop there. For all of us who have accepted Jesus as king, we have to trust him as our king. We have to release the day-to-day difficulties and decisions in our life to his lordship. We will have to take the confusion and any challenge and any suffering that we might face, as well as the good things in life, and surrender them to his control. Jesus proves he's worthy of kingship in our life by him taking our place on the cross. If he would do that for us, is there anything else that he would not give us that we need? We can trust him as king. And finally, I would encourage you to participate in the kingdom of Jesus by joining him in the work that he's doing in the world around us. But by him being our king, he invites us into what he's doing and how he lives and how he shows his love to the world around us that changes it as it does. In light of all that we've seen in this election the past week, I would just encourage you to let your peace and your confidence and your purpose and the direction, the trajectory of your life all come from a single source. And that is that Jesus is king of your life. Regardless of who's elected, our marching orders have not changed. And that is to go into a world that so desperately needs God's love and to be a conduit of it as we go. We're gonna celebrate communion here together right now. And so you can go ahead and grab that little uh, packet, if you will. You know, the rest of the New Testament just kind of plays out what ordinary people like you and me, what their lives look like as they surrender to the kingship of Jesus. The way that they live and the way that they love is actually dictated by the fact that Jesus is their king. The reality is the kingdom of God is led by a perfect king, but it's made up of people like you and me who are imperfect. And so a lot of the New Testament actually describes times when it actually goes upside down, where people who are like you and me with sinful nature kind of make a mess of the kingdom of God. We like do things that like don't show that lordship. So people like Paul pick up a pen and they write letters and say, hey, you kind of got this all upside down. Let me give you some instruction, some admonishment of how to do that right. We like to pick on the Corinthians. They seem to have their fair share of ways of doing it wrong. And one of the things that Paul writes to them about is how they celebrate the Lord's Supper. He's like, oh gosh, you have made a mess of this thing. Like, you know, the Lord's Supper back then was an actual meal. It wasn't like a chiclet and a swig of grape juice. It was actually a full meal. And they sat down to enjoy that. And a lot of times when they did, there were people who would go hungry while other people were gorging themselves. And Paul's like, That's not what it's about. It's not about your physical nourishment. It's not about eating and drinking. It's about Jesus. And so he says in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, on the night Jesus died, he took bread, he broke it, he gave it to his friends. And he said, I want you to eat this bread, not because you'll be nourished by it, but because it represents my body that's broken for you. And I want you to eat it and remember my sacrifice. Remember, it hadn't happened yet. And then he took a cup of wine, he passed it to his friends, and he said, I want you to drink this, not because of how it tastes, but what it signifies. This is my blood that's poured out for you. It seals a covenant between you and God. It makes a new covenant so that you are forgiven and free and part of the kingdom of God. And Paul says, I want you, when you eat the bread and you drink the cup, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your political background, regardless of your social economic status or your gender, I want you to do this together to signify the unity of what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. And so right now, what we're going to do is do just that. 
I'm going to encourage you to pop this little uh, clear cellophane off and go ahead and grab that wafer. Don't let the simplicity of this wafer distract you from how significant it is that Jesus allowed his body to be broken for you so that you wouldn't have to go to hell. Let's remember that as we eat this bread. Jesus' body that was broken for us. I'm going to encourage you to open up this uh, container of juice. Let's go ahead and drink it. It represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us. The sealing of a new covenant, a new way of doing life, a new way of living, living part of the kingdom, that the way that we live and the way that we love is transformed by who our King is. Today, I hope that this simple expression of unity it will motivate us and even convict us to not just eat and drink the way that honors God, but also to live in the love the way that Jesus does, that signifies not in words, but in actions, just exactly who is king of our life. And I'd invite you to stand now and worship him with me.